Well, welcome to the True Man Podcast with Mike Van Pelt, the comeback coach, helping you gain peace, clarity, and understanding in your walk with God as a man, a father, and a spouse. Hey, get involved with the show. Send your email to mike at truemanlifecoaching.com. If you're wondering what's gone adrift in my masculine soul and asking, is there more to life? This is where it begins. This is the True Man Podcast. Well, welcome to the True Man Podcast with Mike Van Pelt. This is an invitation to radical reconstruction of a man's masculine heart and soul and a place of safe community where we dare to ask questions deep-seated inside a man and explore ways to help you become a better man, a better dad, and a better spouse. Well, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. I know you have many options to choose from in the podcast world, and I feel blessed and privileged that you make the time to listen to the True Man Podcast. Well, today I have an inspirational turnaround story for you when I talk with Travis Sackett. Now, he's an author of the book, My Life with Karma. Now, I also want to take the time to congratulate Travis and his wife on the birth of their new son, Born over the Thanksgiving weekend. Now, when you hear Travis's story, I think you'll understand how special it is that Travis has been able to get himself into the position of starting a family. Congratulations, Travis. You know, like many people, Travis's story is one about overcoming addiction. He didn't set out looking for it. And listen, sometimes these things happen. And when they do, they have a wicked way of taking you down a dark path that can be difficult. But addictions of all kinds can be incredibly difficult to overcome. And when a loved one is suffering from an addiction, it can greatly affect you as well. Naturally, you don't like to watch them suffer and you're searching for ways to help. Now, in Travis's case, he found support coming from an unlikely source that you'll learn by the way of a dog named Karma. In many respects, hearing Travis's story is difficult because it becomes dark. On the other hand, the relationship with karma is heartwarming and I think speaks to how we need love and community when dark times come upon us. With that, let's get into my conversation with Travis Sackett, and I'll see you after the interview. You know, the older I get, the greater appreciation I have for someone trying to overcome the odds. You know, many of us go through stuff in our lives, and although we know things are spinning out of control, we can't always stop things and, you know, from going sideways without some help or some kind of motivation. Such is the story of today's guest, a gentleman that I was recently introduced to and had the pleasure of reading his life story in his book. So welcome to the True Man Podcast, Travis Sackett. Travis is an author and speaker. He, uh, his book is called My Life with Karma. It's a must read, and it chronicles his story from childhood to police recruit to addict, and finally, his eventual recovery. Travis, welcome to the True Man Podcast. Mike, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for reading the book. Um, and that's absolutely huge. I love it. So the more people we can get to see the book, the better. Um, thank you once again. Well, it, it, you know, I, it's important that we educate ourselves on certain things. I have two children, and and I want to 
you know, to, to know what's going on in the world and enlighten myself. And there's nobody better to learn from than somebody who's been through the war. So, and let, 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 you know, let's talk about that. You know, even though I knew the outcome of the book, I really just found myself rooting uh, for you and karma. That's a hint to the book folks. Uh, And so a lot of men and people in general know the pain of some of the things you've gone through, but let's start where you got a close up and personal view of addiction from your childhood. And, um, and, and this is where you saw your dad fighting demons from a very young age. Yeah, that's very true. So growing up, um, it was rough. My dad was a high school principal, um, very authoritative figure, um, very proud, very strong man. Um, and basically after work, when he come home, he would drink, um, and he would drink a lot. That was his coping mechanism. If he had a good day at work, he'd drink. If he had a bad day at work, he'd drink. So basically that's what I grew up with. Um, I saw that from as early as I can remember until into my junior high and high school years. Um, he also became verbally and physically abusive when he drank. So there were times where I never knew what to expect out of him. He could be jovial in just a great mood storytelling. And then a drink or two later could be a completely different person. And I never knew what to expect. Either did my mom or my little brother. So we were constantly walking on eggshells growing up with my dad. Yeah. I mean, that had to be a little... <laughs> a little traumatic to be around. How did you maneuver through life at a young age, knowing that, I mean, your dad could get, you know, drunk and, and become abusive. I mean, basically it was keep my head down, try to stay out of sight just, and really try to be the perfect child. Um, when it came to grades, Um, obviously straight A's were pretty much expected of me. So it was a matter of go to school, come home, do my homework, stay out of the way, try to make sure like my toys are picked up, try to make sure my little brother is like doing everything he's supposed to be doing. Um, a lot of it came to also watching out for my little brother. Um, he's four years younger. So I felt that responsibility. Um, there were even times where, something would go wrong and it would be on him, but I would take the blame for it uh, just because I didn't want to see him punished. So when you reflect back on your childhood and that time with your father, how did that, and, and maybe it's a drug abuse down the line. So maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but um, how did that catch up to you later in life? Not having a father presence, not having a father present in the way that, that you would have liked when you were younger. Yeah. I mean, it caught up to me. It really caught up to me when I turned 20. Um, My dad passed away of cirrhosis of the liver and kidneys Hmm. and he passed away without a will. So I was made executor of his estate and it was, it was a tough time for me because I was just kind of finding my own stride, getting into college, um, doing all this stuff that an undergrad should be focused on. That's a lot to take on for a 20 year old. I mean, you're talking about the legal system here and, um, that, 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 would be tough as an, it's a tough thing as an adult, let alone a 20 year old. 
Yeah, so I I had to learn to navigate that. Um, fortunately, we did get an estate attorney, which helped a ton because I was struggling. I was drowning in paperwork that <laughs> I didn't necessarily yeah. understand. So, um, but aside from that, I guess, so it made me grow up really quickly. Yeah. Um, just without really without the guidance of a father most of my life and when I did have that guidance it wasn't necessarily what I was looking for or the feedback that I needed (laughs) um I kind of I learned to just adapt and then kind of play that role for my little brother so once again just stepping up where like my mom my brother needed it and trying to be the adult in situations where I was still a child so you got to grow up fast and you had a lot of interesting college stories, as we all do in the book. So is it, when, you, when you go to college, talk about that because, I mean, you talk about doing some, some, some I got to point the finger, I got to look in the mirror here when I say some heavy drinking in the book. Yeah. And I mean, is that kind of the first hint or inkling that maybe – um, you know, you, you might have some, some leanings toward addiction or at that point, is it just all fun and games for you? Um, it was a combination of both. Like you actually make a great point. Um, because I could see shades of my father and myself. Like mm. the one thing that I realized when I drank was I, I suffer from social anxiety and when I drink, that's gone. That's out the window. Yeah. And in college, I, I'll be real with you, Mike. I love that feeling of mm-hmm. not being anxious, just going to parties, being able to be whoever I wanted to be that evening yeah. and just letting go. Um, the scary part was it always or almost always went too far. Like I would take it when I would start my nights, it would usually be with a bottle of Everclear in the shower. And I mean, other guys may have, yeah, other guys may have a shower beer where I'm like, I'm taking pulls of Everclear just to get to that level where I feel confident that, okay, now I can go out and drink. But at first it was like, I needed even that kind of boost just to get, get things going. And that was scary to me because I'm like, all right, this isn't normal. Even among friends that are drinking, even among fellow like frat boys, stuff like that. I'm like, people aren't doing what I'm doing. So maybe there is an issue here. Um, but at the same time too, I was able to justify it because I was still getting good grades. Um, still doing well, like, like I said, academically, and then in clubs, I was actually the vice president of students against excessive drinking. So (laughs) it was like, I was doing all these things that look good on a college resume, but didn't necessarily have my stuff together. How do you, how do you think you were able to pull that together? I mean, for a lot of people that are, you know, doing excessive partying and drinking. I mean, it's just hard to pull the grades. How do you think you pulled it together? I think because I growing up in an unstable environment and still having to get good grades, I understood school. I knew what it took. And I was basically like, okay, I can devote X amount of time to school. And as long as I do that, I'll have enough time to party, enough time (laughs) to pull myself back together and the other part of it too was facades. Like I learned yeah. from, from my dad, 
to put on a facade. So even if I was hungover, even if I was far from my best, I would still just suck it up and be like, okay, this is what I have to do. I have to appear a certain way. I have to act a certain way in yeah. order to have people perceive me the way I want to. Wow. Well, and you're from Wisconsin. So, I mean, everybody there has a wooden leg. It's been my experience. That's very true. Yeah. I mean, we, we have, we have quite the, uh, we have quite the drinking culture in Wisconsin. So. Wisconsin is a great state. I've met a lot of great people from Wisconsin, but you can't help but joke about it. Um, but, uh, and we probably shouldn't joke about it given the matter of what we're, we're talking about here. So you get through college amazingly enough and you get through and, and what happens to you after college? So after college, I go to the police academy. Um, basically, I self-sponsored, meaning that I wasn't hired by a department at the time, but wanted to make myself a more viable candidate. So I said, I'm going to pay my way through an academy and then hopefully apply for a police force. So got through the academy. Everything went well there. Um, and I applied for Capitol Police. And the Capitol Police were responsible for the protection of the governor of Wisconsin, along with state-owned properties, primarily in Madison. So my role, once I got through field training with Capitol Police, was to protect the governor. Um, pretty cool job. Um, yeah. Basically, I, yeah. It was. I, like I read junior. it in the book. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah. It was like a junior level of like um, secret service is kind of the way I put it, because I still got to meet all the foreign dignitaries that would come visit, um, stayed in the executive residence overnight and provided nighttime protection. Um, so it was cool. It was honestly my dream job, especially growing up in an abusive situation. Um, I wanted to protect other people. That sure. was really my whole goal of getting into law enforcement. And I figured who better than to protect the governor and his family? Like, why not? This is great. So um, I enjoyed most of my time with the Capitol Police. Well, there's only a couple of levels above that. So, I mean, you know. You get get above the governor, you're really into something. But I, I thought that was pretty interesting. And quite honestly, I'm an avid follower of things. And it was interesting to, um, as, as you progress here, um, that you, you spent some time in the Capitol where there, there was some upheaval going on in Madison. I thought that was an interesting story for me personally. Oh, for sure. Um, so you're alluding to the protests that we have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, our governor at the time, Governor Walker, was trying to do away with unions. And that brought up all sorts of upheaval in the state, um, everywhere from teachers unions, truckers, um, even people in law enforcement and fire were protesting. So I had the, uh, the pleasure of working the protests. And <laughs> he's I, saying pleasure sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's funny because at the time, I actually, when the protests started, I promoted, I went from Capitol Police to University of Wisconsin Police, and I was one of four security supervisors for the entire campus. So 
I got promoted and then they immediately leased me back to Capitol Police because they needed more bodies, more, basically more boots on the ground. Yeah. Um, so they put me on a logistics team and logistics basically was fancy for, we've got to get every officer working the <laughs> protest. We've got to get them fed and we've got to make sure they have water is really what it came down to. So yeah. I was relegated to a cooler duty and basically moving these big, just ridiculous giant should have at least two people on these coolers but I was moving them by myself and I ended up hurting my back. And that's where my addiction story kind of kicks off. Yeah. So, so tell us about, you know, you, you sustain this back injury and, and what happens to you from there? So I sustained the back injury. And since we're in the heart of protests, I really didn't have time to call my doctor and be like, Hey, I need to make an appointment. So these were some pretty serious protests going on, by the way, how many people do you, I can't recall. I can see the picture in my mind. I mean, these folks were inside the Capitol. Um, I mean, yeah, more. Oh, way more than a thousand. I think uh, some days I think we were looking at around 8,000 people. Yeah. And the, I mean, bodies all over the Capitol that he's trying to maneuver around here. So get that image in your mind. It was a ton of people. there was no six feet apart going on. How about that? Oh no, definitely no social distancing. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So, so basically I'm offloading these coolers. I hurt my back and I end up going to a walk-in doctor. Um, it was the best I could do at the time. And they immediately looked at my back. I said, look, I'm having sciatica. I can't bend over, can't tie my shoes, can't straighten up. Um, pretty much all the things that you need a back to do, mine wasn't doing. So they end up prescribing me three different medications, um, a Dotalac, Tramadol to help sleep, and then Oxycontin. And it, I'm not going to lie to you, Mike, for the first 30 days, I felt like I was on cloud nine because <laughs> the medication worked. It did yeah. exactly what it was supposed to do. Um, I was also really big into powerlifting at the time and had qualified for worlds in Las Vegas. So um, I was still in the gym and I was still lifting about 80% of my max weights before the injury. So I was like, okay, in my mind, I was still going to worlds. I was still going to go participate, even injured and try to make a showing of it. Um, I had a supplement company that was sponsoring me too. So there was a little pressure from them in terms of, well, performance and what they were going to get back for their investment. So it was, it was a tough time. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to point out here that sadly enough, you have an injury sciatica, which is no fun, but the point is, it's you, you could almost gloss right over this story, but the drugs they gave you, I mean, boom, like that, your life is completely changed from an injury and medications that they put you on. And oh, and by the way, that doesn't fix the injury. So, um, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that because it's so simple, and that's how some of these addictions start. And then, so I just kind of wanted to stop and point that out. And then 
things progress, unfortunately, from there. Yeah, it eventually, like what it started with was clock watching is what I call it, where I was constantly fixated on when I could take my next dose. Um, the dosages of the Oxycontin after about 30 days weren't lasting nearly as long as they initially did, where at first I was getting three to four good hours out of a pill. It was reduced to about one to two hours. Mm. So the next thing you know, I get re-upped on my scripts. Um, they actually gave me 60 days, I believe 60 or 90 days. I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but that's when I started to have addiction problems. Like aside from the clock watching, it was, I was taking my dosage way too quickly, um, just yeah. blowing through the medication and it was all the function. It was all so that I could basically go to work be fit for duty, perform my job, and then come home, try to basically get through a night with as little pain as possible and try to get some sleep and then just repeat the cycle over and over again. And I was just locked in this cycle of use and more use and then more use just to try to get some function out of my body. I'm just shaking my head because I just can't even imagine a drug having that much control. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It really, it made me a passenger in my own life is really what mm -hmm. happened. Um, because I was so, I was so committed to the drug from a physical standpoint and then psychologically it yeah. started to take a toll as well. So then I started to tell myself, look, I can't do certain things without this drug. Like I can't be fit for duty. I can't perform my job. And I, I started to believe that narrative. Um, yeah. So then that gave the drug even more power. So, yeah, so, like all stories, <laughs> this one has to culminate at some point in yeah. getting caught because you, you, you know, you can't, you can't be high on a drug and, and not get to a point where you get caught. So talk a little bit about that situation. Yeah. So eventually what happened was I ended up getting cut off from my doctor. Um, they said, look, you're either going to have to have surgery or we're going to have to go somewhere out. Like we can't just keep feeding you this medication. Mm -hmm. So I went from having um, basically not an unlimited supply, but as much as I needed to having nothing at all. Um, that at that point in time, I decided to start working with a, a drug dealer. Um, so it was a guy from the gym that I knew that I had lifted with occasionally, and I knew he was able to get steroids. So I just blatantly asked him, I'm like, can you do anything with pain medication? And he told me right away, yeah, I can. I'll be able to get you something vet grade out of Canada. And the only problem is you have to buy in bulk, which to me was not a problem because <laughs> I needed it. So I was yeah. like, okay, yeah. no yeah. worries. So the next thing you know, I have a $600 a week pill problem that, and I had a mortgage, a wife, um, she had a horse. So we had all sorts of money going out and not nearly enough coming in on a police officer's salary. 
So I began stealing to support my habit. Um, I actually stole credit card information from the gym that I worked out at and then sold that information um, to help afford my pills. Do you feel like you were conscious at that point? Were you consciously doing it or was the, the, the pull of the drug so bad that you're like, screw it. I need a credit card in order to keep up. Um, it was basically a screw type situation. <laughs> like I, I just, I got to the point where the only thing that I cared about was that drug mm. and yeah. just maintain, maintaining the crash course that I was on. Like I didn't yeah. see any other way. Like to me, I, I didn't see recovery. I didn't see a chance of, okay, going somewhere and getting clean. I honestly thought, okay, I'm going to be stuck with this drug for as long as it will carry me. And then I didn't know what was going to happen after that. And like you said, you can only operate that long for so long yeah. before you, before you get caught. And that's eventually what happened with me. Um, one day I went into work at UWPD and was called directly into my lieutenant's office um, before my shift even started. So right away, it was an oh shit moment for me. Um, yep. I knew, all right, either this is going to be about my work performance because I knew that it had been poor or something worse. And when I got in his office, there were three members of Madison Police Department, a detective and two plainclothes officers. And they dropped a file about uh, two inches thick on the desk and just said, look, we know what you've been doing. Um, we know about the credit cards. And basically, what do you have to say for yourself? And I just told them, look, I'm, I don't have anything to say. I need to talk to an attorney. And at that time, I was handcuffed, um, paraded through my department in handcuffs before they brought me outside and put me in a squad car. So what's yeah. going through your mind? while they're parading you through all your buddies. Dude, it's just the, the shame and guilt. Like yeah. we talked we talked before um, we came on air, but it was, I couldn't even pick up my head to look at people. Um, yeah. It was just a matter of thinking to myself, please get me out of here as fast as possible. I think that was the only time in my life jail seemed like a better alternative than oh. being in the police department. Yeah. So, Yeah. So they haul you off to jail. Yep. The story continues. Exactly. So, so I go to jail, I get booked and released, um, which thank God for that, because this was the same jail in the same community where I was an officer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not like the movies, but it's still <laughs> being an officer is not a friendly place when you go to jail. Like you yeah. don't want people to know that. So uh, I, thankfully I was booked and released, um, was able to come home, get my affairs in order, um, get hooked up with an attorney. And then the attorney recommended right away. He's like, you need to get yourself into some kind of counseling, some kind of program, because he's like, you're on a crash course and either it's going to be more charges or you're going to end up dead. Um, so basically he helped me get into a program where I was seeing a counselor. Um, I didn't do detox at that time. 
I was still trying to kind of white knuckle it and just get through day by day. Um, I did flush my pills and I ended up um, at that time to rescuing a dog. And this is kind of where my story changes. Mm -hmm. Um, So the same dealer that I got the uh, pain meds through called me one weekend and said, look, I know you like dogs. There's this drug house and it's out in the country and there's this dog chained to a tree. I don't know what kind of dog it is. It may be a pit bull, something like that. But if you want to check it out, I don't know how long the dog's going to be there. So that's the info I got. So one Saturday, I decided to venture out to this house. And basically, as I pull up, I see this poor emaciated dog chained to a tree, just like he described. Um, No food, water dish was flipped upside down. I mean, you could see the dog's ribs, the backbone, everything like that. So I walked up to the house and knocked on the door. No one answered, knocked again. And I could see someone peeking through the blinds. So I'm like, okay, I know someone's here. They just don't want to talk to me. Um, Went back, looked at the dog some more and basically made the decision that if I didn't do something for this animal, it was going to die. Like there was no doubt in my mind that this dog did not have very much time left. So I went to a local hardware store, got a bolt cutter, came back and uh, cut the dog from the tree and took her home. And that's how I ended up getting karma. So karma became my ride or die. Yeah. Do you, do you look back on it now and see the parallels of that moment and that dog chained to a tree in your life? Honestly, I now I can at the time. Yeah, right. No, at the time, no. no, at the time I was I was so swept up in everything else that was going on in my life. Like it was just another, it was just another day, so to say. Like yeah. I just looked at it like, oh, no big deal. Going out to a drug house to look at a dog. That's <laughs> you know, whatever. That's that's normal. Like people do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now I mean I can see the parallels and yeah. I can, I can laugh at it because it's like, wow, I was that dog chained to the tree, literally. And yeah, that was the first step in rescuing myself was saving her. Yeah. So now you've got the dog karma and, yep. um, you know, the, 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 the story, you got something to live for now. Yeah, exactly. So because- Oh, go, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say um, just for the audience who hasn't read the book. Well, I was after I got my charges, um, my wife decided to leave me. So mm-hmm. it was literally just me and the dog. Yeah, it's a tough part of the book to read. Yeah. You know, because uh, you're going through a tough time trying to get off drugs. You've got these charges. And now this dog comes, you know, wife leaves. Now you got this dog as a part of your life. So you still have to go back and fight those charges. Yeah, exactly. And that did not really go well, to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, Being a police officer, no. And being accused of theft. um, Basically, the DA wanted to make an example out of me. They looked at the addiction as something that was secondary not necessarily something that caused my problems um, where I looked at it like, look, I wouldn't have done these things that I was so morally opposed to had I not had an addiction piece in my life. Um, So to me, addiction, well, you can't blame it all. You can definitely point the finger and say that 
that played a role. It played a substantial part. Um, and the courts just didn't see it that way. They saw it as, well, you were an officer, you knew better and you should have done better. Um, so basically I ended up with probation on top of, I had to serve time in jail as well. What was that like? Uh, jail was tough. Um, I, it was, it was really tough. Uh, to be honest with you, it every day, it was kind of like being back in the household with an alcoholic father, not mm -hmm. knowing what to expect. Um, and then I had to put, once again, I had to put on a facade because I couldn't be Travis Sackett, the former police officer. Um, fortunately, when before I went to jail, I ended up picking up a job as a caterer and a server in a restaurant. So when people asked me what I did, I was able to say, oh, well, I work in the restaurant industry. So that kind of <laughs> saved me. But yeah, yeah really, it was, you know, it, it, it was it, it, there's there's there's. I picked this out of the book actually. And I thought it was interesting because there's um, there's so much truth around this, not just for people that are addicted quite honestly, but for everyday people. And I, I this was on page one oh one of the book. And you said, I faked everything and did so with an aptitude that had placed me in contention to win an Academy award. And I read that and I thought, wow, you know, so, so many of us go through life wearing a mask or posing or trying to be something we're not. You talked about this just from the drinking aspect. And, um, you know, I can relate to that. You know, when I was in college, you know, being able to drink, I mean, you could be whoever you wanted to be. And, um, but being able to fake everything, <laughs> I just read that and I was like, wow. That is just so, so heavy. Yeah. And it definitely, it took a toll is the thing that, yeah. so I say that, but in the same sense too, trying to constantly be something else and going against your own nature, going against yeah. maybe who you want to be just to fulfill a role is wearing and it wore on me. It wore heavy on me. Um, I still carry that with me today. Um, to some degree, because the shame and guilt associated with what I did while I was in active addiction. Um, and then too, the number of relationships that I just destroyed straight up, just tore apart yeah. because I wasn't able to be honest with myself. So I definitely wasn't honest with other people. Yeah. yeah well, it would be impossible to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll speed this up a little bit. So you get you get out of, you get out of jail the first time. Yep. And uh, I guess we could take off from there. Yeah. So basically out of jail the first time, um, did some good things, got myself into grad school, um, started working toward my master's in community counseling and um, got a year sober too. Um, but once again, I did it, like I said, I did it white knuckling it. I wasn't yeah. all in. Um, I never at that point in time, never went to detox, never kind of went through the steps, never found a mentor. I mean, I went to meetings, but I was always kind of there because in my mind, I'm like, well, this is where I should be. So I would, <laughs> right. I would go, but I wasn't necessarily listening. I wasn't taking away what I needed to. So one night, um, 
And I, I should preface this by saying I'd been up for about two days straight. Um, I was struggling with some mental health stuff that hadn't been diagnosed yet. And one night I decided that, well, I can go out and drink as long as I don't use or come across my drug of choice, I can go drink and I'll be fine. So I went out at around midnight, um, right away started ordering Long Islands and just got inebriated, absolutely hammered. Um, had anywhere from, I think, six to eight in about a two hour time period. And then it was last call and I decided, well, my house was only about a mile away from the bar. I'm like, I can drive home. Um, on my drive home, I over-accelerated on my last turn, crashed my car into a curb and ended up messing up something in the front end. So here I am just absolutely wasted, um, not thinking clearly and like, well, I can walk home. It's not that far, but I'm like, first I need to go to the bathroom and I'm going to be sick. So I ended up going to the bathroom on the side of some guy's house, yeah. throwing mm -hmm. up and trying to basically just collect myself for the walk home, leaned up against the car and set off a car alarm. Now all sorts of hell is about to break loose. Um, yeah. Neighbors lights come on. This guy comes outside with a flashlight. He's screaming. I think he thought I was a kid because he yelled, like, if I catch you, I'm going to beat you, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And my best, at the time, my best thought was, okay, I can try to hide behind this other vehicle in an adjacent driveway. And I'm, it's hard to tell. I'm a big dude. I run like 220. I'm over six feet. So hiding is not a good option. For me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I try to hide. He sees me. I open the car door, get in the car, lock the door. And by that time, he's all the, all the way over to the car door. He's banging against the window with a flashlight. Um, telling me to get the F out of the vehicle, et cetera. And I'm just like trying to drunkenly explain to him, hey, man, I'm your neighbor. I'm just trying to get home. Well, he seemed to calm down a bit. So I went to get out of the car. And when I did, according to the police report, they said I lunged at him. I believe to this day, I just took a drunken stumble. Yeah. And at that point in time, he proceeded to beat me with the Meglite flashlight. Um, I fractured my skull in three places, um, had a traumatic brain injury, and actually had air get into my brain cavity. So I was knocked out, um, no idea how long. And the next thing I knew, I was in the back of an ambulance headed to the first hospital. Uh, once I got there, they said my injuries were too severe. They couldn't treat me. So I had to take another emergency um, short drive, fortunately, to the UW hospital where they promptly said, okay, you've had a severe brain injury um, and you're going to need to go into surgery to get the air out of your brain cavity and to repair your skull. So that was my next uh, 24 hours was two surgeries um, the whole left side of my face is all titanium. Um, it's basically held together by like three plates and yeah, um, they put me back together. I thank God for UW health and the doctors there. 
Um, they did the best job they could. And basically, I thought I was going to spend about the next week in the hospital recovering. But after a day and a half, um, the police came and got me because I was on probation for the thefts. Yeah. Um, and I had violated my probation. So I went from jail. I mean, I went from having the traumatic brain injury to recovering in the hospital to jail within a day and a half. And when I got to jail, they said I wasn't fit for general population. So I went to solitary confinement. Um, so that's where I spent the next seven days recovering from the traumatic brain injury. And that was my rock bottom. Um, that's when I decided I had to make major changes in my life or basically I was going to end up dead. You know, it was hard to read. It was actually harder to hear you say it. I got to tell you, um, you know, it, it, um, so you, unfortunately, now you find yourself in jail with a whole new set of charges. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Yep. So I ended up with a disorderly conduct charge. Um, but the worst part of it was the violation of the probation yeah. meant that I had to go back before the judge and my probation was revoked. Um, so I had to spend the remaining time I owed in jail, which was about seven months, um, where I had to recover from the traumatic brain injury. Um, I had lost my ability to speak in complete sentences, and I also couldn't write. Um, so I had what's called aphasia where I would get stuck on words. It's pretty common for like stroke patients. Um, so I was struggling with that and doing all my own PT in jail, uh, just trying to learn to write and speak again. It's kind of on your own rehab. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Unbelievable. So you get out of jail let's get to the let's get to some good stuff here okay positive stuff yeah so you get out of jail and um you meet somebody yes yeah so it, it i didn't meet her right away but um after i gave myself a year um and in that year time basically i went back to the place where I was doing counseling, um, did what's called IOP, so intensive outpatient um, counseling along with one-on-one. Um, -on -one. And this time I was all in, in terms of recovery and really making sure that I was gonna get the most out of it, benefit the most and change the most. Um, and part of that was going to the gym and just redeveloping healthy gym habits. Um, so while I was in the gym, I met my now wife, Vanessa. Um, she was a personal trainer at the gym at the time. And she actually just a small little thing. She's like five, two. And I was benching heavy that day. And she came over and made a comment about the weights that I had on. And she's like, oh, you're trying to get big, trying to play with chains. And I was like, who is this little girl talking <laughs> nonsense to me? Like, what is this? So I was immediately intrigued and had to find out more about Vanessa. So I uh, eventually asked her on a date and she said, yes. Listen to that. See, we can all, we can all overcome and have a comeback. So I'm going to, um, 
I'm going to leave the rest of the book. People are going to have to get it. So we'll, you know, do the rest of the story. But I, I think that, that, that anybody that's heard this whole thing gets the idea that um, painkillers can be incredibly dangerous if you're not careful. And so I, I just kind of want to jump forward and give everybody Travis, tell everybody how you've translated, obviously the book you've translated, what has happened to you, to your life now, to the point where you're helping others talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I decided that in order for me to really make a difference and to have my story matter, um, I needed to help other people that were struggling in a similar way with addiction. So I became a certified recovery coach, um, which that's what I do now on top of speaking and writing the book. Um, and basically I work with clients in a one-on-one -on -one and try to meet them where they're at and yeah. get them the help they need is really what it comes down to. Um, I know the resources in my community and I know what it takes to become sober and to stay sober. So I rely a lot on my past experiences along with other experiences that I've heard well in the rooms and in counseling and in treatment and other things that have worked from the counselors that I've worked with. And I just give those tools to other people and I try to help them along and progress their journey. Before we end today, and I, I want, I definitely want to ask this question. If somebody's listening to this and they have a family member that's going through, um, I don't want to say any addiction because we've been talking a lot about painkillers here and that type of thing. What's the best advice you would give them if they've got somebody in their life right now going through a similar situation? How could, what would you suggest that they do in order to get this person help? Um, I would say right off the bat, connection is key. So having a real conversation with the person, finding out what they need or what their perceived needs are, finding out really kind of how deep in the addiction they are and what they think could help them. Um, a lot of the time we forget to ask the question of, well, what, what do you think could help? And that's usually where I like to start. And sometimes the answer may be, I have no idea. And that's okay. We yeah. can work with that, but it just gives you a base to find out where the person's at. Um, because addiction is such an isolating disease. That's why I say the connection is such a key point because so often, like I said before, we're putting on facades, we are acting as a different person um, and to try to get us back to our normal baseline, it takes connection and it takes real work. Yeah. In fact, this is one thing that I wrote down. You were talking about in the chapter of the road to recovery. It said by surrounding myself with people in recovery, I immediately felt less unique. Hearing the testimonials of others made me feel like I was surrounded by like-minded individuals. And I think that's a really, really uh, important quote, really for anybody, because so much of the time in life, we try to do things on our own and not put our hand in the air and ask for help. And um, our problems aren't necessarily unique. They're unique to you, but somebody's been down that road and they can help and assist. And I, you know, so I read that quote and that kind of sat with me, um, you know, that we need to be able to ask for help. 
Travis, tell everybody, and of course we'll put this in the show notes. How can they get a hold of you? How can they get their hands on the 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 book? Okay, so the book My Life with Karma, the easiest way to get it is through Amazon. Mm-hmm. I actually keep the ebook sale price at 99 cents. So anyone who has a Kindle, things like that, it's super accessible. Um, otherwise, the paperback's also on sale. I believe it's like $14 and change right now. Um, if people want to get a hold of me directly, uh, the biggest thing is either Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, just type in Travis Sackett or Travis Sackett author, and you'll find me right away. Awesome. Well, like I said, we'll put that in the show notes. Travis, thanks so much for coming on and telling your story. I think that, you know, these types of things could be so impactful because we know, unfortunately, and the statistics are out there for anybody to look at that this is a huge substantial problem in our country and and there are people dealing with this and so um i think that hearing your story can really bless other people um and and give them some practical ideas on how how to help their loved one or their friend or whatever whatever the case may be so i appreciate you greatly coming on today and telling your story travis yeah mike thank you again for just allowing me the time to share i really appreciate it Absolutely. So grateful to have you on here and and, uh, so wonderful uh, to know that you're doing well and, and doing good things for people. So thanks again. Excellent. Thank you again, Mike. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing Travis Sackett's story, and I want to encourage you to go out and get his book, My Life with Karma. If you have any family member with addiction, I think this will give you insight into uh, how to push forward in that situation. You know, addictions can affect nearly every part of your life, and unfortunately, addictions also become progressively worse the longer you have them, and you heard this in Travis's story. You know, some of the most common addictions include addictions to alcohol, drugs, food, tobacco, pornography, and gambling. And we've talked about some of those issues on previous podcasts. No matter what addiction you're dealing with, you're trapped. And that addiction will continue to control your life until you learn how to or ask for help on overcoming it. And even though there are many different kinds of addictions, there are they're similar in one respect in that they control you instead of the other way around. And when you're addicted to something, you may actually feel like a slave to that addiction, but you are the one who should be in control. Now, I don't want to minimize the challenge of addictions. As you heard from Travis, an addiction train can be terribly difficult to get off. But if you're suffering from an addiction, it's good to know that there are techniques that can enable you to safely and effectively overcome it. So I want to encourage you, if this is you and you have an addiction challenge, commit yourself to change. You know, first of all, if you're tired of living the erratic life of an addict, make a commitment to yourself to change your life. Yes, it's a difficult road, but you are worth the effort and you deserve to have a better life. Look at all the benefits of beating the addiction to see clearly how much better your life will be without it and write those benefits down. Make it a goal to change your life. 
Choose the better life. Commit to making that positive change. Make a solemn contract with yourself to do everything in your power to overcome that addiction and get help when you need it. Request the support of family and friends. Yes, I know this might be difficult, but one of the most important things you can do to succeed in your goal is to get support. If you try to do this all on your own, you're more likely to fail. You need all the support of friends and family around you. They can keep you accountable for your actions. They can guide you and give you the help you need. And they can provide you the emotional support that you have to have in place to bolster your resolve. And if you find that your family and friends aren't giving you that support that you need, either distance yourself from that negative attitude or explain what you need from them in order to be successful. You know, get involved in support groups if that works for you. Join a local support group. It can be helpful as well as, you know, especially if your friends and family don't fully understand the challenges you're facing. You know, it's enlightening to talk with others going through the same experiences as you so that you know that you're not alone. It can give you a better perspective on what's happening in your life. And it shows you that others can do it and care about you as well. So don't be afraid to speak up and tell your story, your struggles or fears to the group. You know, most support groups are going to require that their members maintain privacy so the participants will feel comfortable in sharing. And it's just important for you to know that there's a group of people around you that have gone through similar things like yourself. And get professional help if you need it. You know, seeking professional help is an excellent choice. And for some serious addictions, it may be the only way to recover. And, and listen, in certain cases, there's going to be medications that could be available to help with certain addictions. But in order to use them, you're going to have to, you know, talk with your doctor who will oversee a treatment as you progress. And even if you use medications, having a professional guide you through a treatment and a therapy plan, well, it will help ensure your success. And listen, don't quit when you make a mistake. It's not easy what you're trying to do when you have an addiction. Just go circle back to Travis's story today on the podcast. Incredibly challenging and almost cost him his life. You know, you may stumble from time to time, but this doesn't mean that you should throw your hands up and quit. Remember, it's a step-by-step process. And if you fall, well, you need to get up and keep going. That's true of all of us. It is possible for you to overcome your addictions safely and effectively. Use some of the techniques I just talked about to help conquer your demon once and for all. And lastly, consider prayer. Get in prayer with your father. That's going to be a world of difference for you by building that relationship in Christ. Because you don't want to go this alone, and you need that help from your Heavenly Father. Now, I also want to make myself available to you if you want to talk, if that's what you're looking for. Now, be the man that asks for help, not the guy who tries to take on the world by himself. So reach out to me 
It's a free call. Give me a call. Drop me an email at mike at truemanlifecoaching.com. Let's get you headed down the road of becoming the true man that you want to become. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast interview with Travis Sackett. Go out and get his book. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave us a great review on your favorite podcast channel. I always appreciate those reviews. Now go out and make this your best day ever. Improve your life today with Mike Van Pelt and True Man Life Coaching. Let's develop a roadmap of discovery that leads to success and satisfaction in your life. For additional information and details on how to schedule an initial coaching call, go to truemanlifecoaching.com.